everyone, it is Stephanie Postles, the host of Up Next in Commerce. Before we get into our latest interview with another e-commerce leader, I wanted to let you know that the Up Next in Commerce podcast is now available for sponsorship for the first time ever. By partnering with us, your company will be connected to interviews with the most compelling founders, CEOs, VPs, and digital leaders in the world of commerce today. You have nothing to gain but thousands of followers and millions of impressions each and every month. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with our team at Up Next in Commerce. Everything you learn about the business in the US market, you leave out the door when you walk through Shanghai Airport. And I think that's where you have to really come in with eyes wide open to say, how is the consumer interacting? From starting a hedge fund to owning the D2C beauty market in China, Now that's a career path you don't hear too often. But that's the winding road that Julian Race has traveled. And along the way, he's picked up some critical intel about the e-commerce world and Chinese trends that he shared with me on this episode of Up Next in Commerce. There are a bevy of factors to take into account when entering the Chinese market. From the vast differences in the way consumers shop in China to the sheer volume of consumers that can make a huge boom in sales in a matter of moments. There's a lot to contend with here. And how does a brand even get in front of a customer without traditional ads or email marketing? And what about social media or regulations? Julian explains how to take all that information into account and build an e-commerce strategy that lets you win abroad. Plus, he dives into how his company, Super Ordinary, is working with top skincare brands to enter the Chinese market and some of the experiences that can be expected when embarking on this new path. What a fascinating discussion that was so different than any interviews I've done so far. I hope you enjoy it like I did. Really quick, I want to say thank you, thank you to our awesome sponsor, Salesforce Commerce Cloud. And I'm going to allow them to give you the inside scoop into some of the findings from their most recent State of Commerce report. Hi, this is John from Salesforce. Did you know that companies of all sizes and industries power their digital customer journeys with Commerce Cloud? Salesforce Commerce Cloud delivers B2B and B2C commerce, as well as order management around the globe. And with Commerce Cloud, you can engage with your customers anywhere and personalize interactions everywhere. Scale and innovate with ease and drive some serious growth for your business. And speaking of innovation, we recently surveyed nearly 1,400 commerce leaders and analyzed the consumer shopping and business buying behavior of more than 1 billion customers worldwide. And we uncovered emerging trends that will influence how companies can be successful and stay ahead in this ever-evolving landscape. To check out the trends we discovered, go to sfdc.co slash commerce insights. That's sfdc.co slash commerce insights, one word. Before we get into the episode, I would love it if you could hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review. I really want to know what you think and hear how we're doing. All right, on to the interview. everyone, and welcome back to Up Next in Commerce. This is your host, Stephanie Postles, CEO at mission.org. Today on the show, we have Julian Race, the CEO and founder of Super Ordinary. Julian, welcome. Thank you, Stephanie. Lovely to meet you. I'm happy you're here. I'm glad you're not in Hong Kong. I was a little bit worried at first. Like, it's about to be like 2 a.m. for this guy, and he's hopping on the show. I mean, I would have also appreciated that, but that's okay. So before we dive into Super Ordinary, I want to hear about your background because you have a very fascinating background. And I want to hear like what led you to the beauty industry? 
Well, first of all, um, you know, my background, I'm half Australian, half Chinese Portuguese. Um, I was born in Australia and at um, a tender age of five, I moved to Singapore um, where I followed my parents when my dad was working for Pizza Hut. Um, my twin brother, who's identical, we grew up in Singapore and we kind of were brought into this world to experience all these different cultures and um, you know, really thank my parents for like giving us such an international upbringing. We all went to these international schools in Singapore mm-hmm. and in Hong Kong and um, really got a flavor for like all the different Southeast Asian countries growing up. I um, went to study in the UK um, to confuse myself even more um, and studied um, economics at University of Nottingham. Mm-hmm. And Justin, my brother, was in London at the London School of Economics. And we kind of like had these like parallel paths where we didn't know what we wanted to do after university. And I was always intrigued by, you know, the financial markets. Mm-hmm. When I was at university, I always thought that this was at the time when, you know, we still had analog internet dialogues and, you know, but I was always curious to see how people were like thinking about this, this global economy. Um, I applied to probably 150 jobs after university and, you know, got very disheartened that, you know, I couldn't move to Tokyo, which I had this dream. and to always live in Japan. Mm-hmm. And I found myself, you know, finding a job eventually in New York at JP Morgan. I was one um, of 3,000 applicants to the markets training program, which was a rotation through the JP Morgan training program. Mm-hmm. I just still don't know how I got it, but, um, you know, I, I was so thankful because I, I went to New York without even an interview and, and basically phoned from downstairs and told the graduate recruitment officer that, Hey, I'm downstairs. You might as well see me. Wow. And I, suddenly I got the job. So, you know, I, I feel very, very lucky for that. Yeah. You know, I went from there to, um, as a trader, I was trading, um, derivatives, um, in fixed income interest rate derivatives. And that really started to shape my career about thinking about, you know, the macro markets and how you need to think about the world. And after three, three years, I moved back to Asia and found myself, you know, working at Deutsche Bank and, um, and again, building my career as a proprietary trader. Um, and then I realized that, you know, I would love to try and build my own business. And, you know, in finance, you either work at these investment banks as a trader. You know, the, the idea of a hedge fund was still very new. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was 27, I decided to go alone and start my own hedge fund and um, try to rustle up as much money from my friends and family and kind of realized that I didn't have that many friends and family (laughs) Um, and started my first hedge fund, which was called Pagoda Capital, Mm -hmm. um, which was one of the first macro funds in Singapore. I got acquired by Tudor Capital a year later um, and became um, CEO of their Asian business, um, building out their macro strategies in Singapore and Australia. Why did they want to acquire you after a year? Like, what were you doing? You must have been doing something amazing. You know, I, it was kind of interesting at the time because we were like one of the only funds in Asia doing what we were doing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there clearly was, and this actually dovetails into what we're doing now because we saw this opportunity to build a business around um, the Asian markets. And, um, you know, many of these big, large, successful brands or hedge funds in the US wanted to get exposure to this market. And the way they did that was, you know, find like-minded individuals who were trading and and eventually, um, we came together and um, you know built this business. And Paul Tudor Jones is still to this day, is more, you know, one of the guys I idolize the most in the world. And um, that gave me my introduction into the financial markets. 
Very cool. Okay. So your hedge fund gets acquired, you're working there for a bit and then what? And then what? So, you know, I moved to the UK again, working um, at a new hedge fund, which I founded. And um, I realized that the common thread to all of this was that I really enjoyed building businesses. Mm -hmm. And I really felt like from zero to one, when you're building a business, it's all about hiring the right people and, you know, building successful partnerships. And um, after a couple of years of working in the hedge fund industry, um, you know, we entered 2008, which was obviously the financial crisis. And, you know, what became really apparent and important to me was that this was not sustainable and that, you know, it was really exciting to see. And at the time, it was a very difficult time because, you know, to change out of a career or something that you'd be trained in to move into a completely different industry was very scary. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought long and hard about making that decision. I met this lady who was starting a, a, a group on startup. I said, listen, if you, if you decide to do something in beauty, come back to me because I think there's a really big opportunity. And I started to see that the Asian population or communities were really interested in foreign brands. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I, I was a founding investor of a company called Luxola, which, um, you know, the e-commerce 1.0 distributed brands in Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. And after two years was acquired by LVMH to become Sephora's digital presence in Southeast Asia. So I really got an understanding about learning about building um, and investing on the beauty side. And then I thought, well, you know, why not try my hand at building my own brand? Um, so moved to the US to start a brand called Skin Laundry, uh -huh. um, which is a skincare brand um, focused on disrupting services. And really proud of what Skin Laundry has become today. It's now in five countries around the world, in the Middle East, London, Hong Kong, and all throughout the US. Wow. Did you sell that? No, I didn't. Um, you know, the brand's still operational. I still mm -hmm. remain one of the largest shareholders of the business. Um, but really brought a management team in to really accelerate the brand. Mm -hmm. I think it's a very unique concept and, you know, it continues to be uh, a loved brand by the customers. And I think by working and building a brand on that side really started to, you know, when I was back in Hong Kong and I noticed in China, many of the brands that we were exposed to whilst we were in the US were not available in China. Mm -hmm. That's where um, Super Ordinary was born. So I moved to Shanghai three and a half, well, almost four years ago now, and kind of just wanted to study like how brands are being bought and sold in, in China. Um, and then I kind of like all kind of went off and said to me, like, this is an incredible opportunity all these digital native brands that we see in the aisles of Sephora and Ulta and Mecca, why aren't they available? So I started the company and um, started hiring my first few employees in a, in a country that I had um, you know, very little um, experience in. Mm -hmm. And I didn't speak the local language. You know, I could only speak pidgin, Mandarin. And um, I said, well, this seems like a... <laughs> A big enough challenge. Let's go. <laughs> yep. That's, that's amazing. So you basically saw this opportunity. All these brands should be in China, but they weren't. So what are some of the top reasons why brands maybe don't even think about bringing their product to China? Because from the outside, it does feel like scary and regulations. And does the customer there even want, you know, what we love here? It seems like very different yeah, things that they love versus like maybe what I might like. So like, what are some of the reasons that you hear brands are like, I don't even have never thought about that before. I think the first thing which you kind of touched upon is, is 
the regulation. Mm-hmm. First of all, you know, animal testing, you know, obviously something that many of the brands or most of the brands in our portfolio goes against the DNA of, of what they believe. Mm-hmm. Luckily, on May the 1st, um, animal testing regulation has now been announced to have gone away which is incredible because it just opens up like this huge untapped physical market domestically. I think because of that um, restriction, it was very difficult for brands to enter China. So everyone hears of these stories about um, Chinese tourists coming overseas and bringing back suitcases of products in the suitcases and and reselling them locally. And I think what happened was that, you know, the government obviously realized that this was happening and said, you know, rather than smuggling products into the country, Let's create a channel for these products to enter the country on a legitimate basis. And let's make sure that, you know, they're real products, authenticated, they're registered, and then they can be sold. But in order to do this, this channel, which we call the cross-border channel, only limits the amount of products that you can, you can sell to an individual consumer mm-hmm. in China on a given month or a given year. There's a, there's a quota in terms of uh, absolute RMB value. Mm-hmm. Whilst it's an exciting channel and it continues to grow, represents close to 20% of um, the e-commerce market, obviously there are, there are restrictions for that. Um, so we started our business as a cross-border business, which allows us to work with brands anywhere from pharmacy to the ordinary to drunk elephant, mm-hmm. super group. And we really have an incredible partner portfolio. And to be able to build their presence in China by creating a profile from there for them on social media, in all the different channels, on Tmall, and really build a brand from zero and continue to grow them there across some, you know, multiple channels. Yeah. So that's how we started. Um, you know, we currently have we're globally close to 300 employees in the company now, mm-hmm. um, most of which are based in, in China. And I think what we do as a business is really provide that one-stop shop service where we really build your brand. We call ourselves not a distributor. I would almost call ourselves like the general manager of your brand in China because we do everything that you would do as a brand owner by operating your brand in a foreign market. Yeah. So what are some of the tests that you do to figure out would the market here even want this? Because that seems like a big thing. If you know a brand comes to you and you're like, I'm selling this, and you're like, ah, that actually might not even like go well yeah. here. Like, what are some things that you think about <laughs> yeah. like if a brand should even try to enter China? Yeah, I think I mean that's that's the million dollar question. I think what we do, we've, we've gotten a lot better at it because I think the the consumer there is very discerning. Mm-hmm. Um, even though a lot of the information about that brand is not readily available on social Chinese social media. There are ways to get it and people do find out about it. So what we typically do for any brand that wants to work with us is really have initially have a conversation to really understand what the, the point of difference of the brand is and really to see if there's a product market fit. Um, so we do a lot of desktop research around the brand, not only in its home market, but in China to see how big that opportunity is. So if someone comes to us and says, oh, we want to launch, you know, blonde hair dye in in Shanghai and we think it's a big market because it's big in the UK, Mm -hmm. you know, we have to question like, is there a demand for people to dye their hair blonde? And I think that's what we do and we've gotten better at is we test a lot of the products within our team. We have um, experts in each of the categories that we manage who really are our first port of call in terms of trying to see if there's an understanding or a demand for this product. 
remember all these brands have zero social awareness. So as the market's got more and more expensive to launch a brand, it's really important for us to, you know, make sure that if we get behind it, we're going to be able to spend the marketing dollars to get the brand to where it needs to be for it to make sense financially. So after two weeks of like very deep due diligence on the brand, um, we'll go back to the brand founder and say, listen, we think, you know, your hero product in, in America is this, but you know what, actually in China, we think it's A, B, and C. So that helps us have this conversation. And once we get to that point where we think that there's a, an alignment, we then start working on financial terms on how we would work together. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is that your background in like the hedge fund world seems like it would be so helpful when coming in, like analyzing brands and looking for opportunity and, you know, looking at competitors and stuff. I mean, it seems like a perfect fit of kind of how you came about even into this world, which is really fascinating. Yeah, I think, you know, the hedge fund world really gave me an appreciation of data um, and really thinking about data in a different way that I would normally do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for us to, whether it's analyzing the influences that we work with or analyzing the live streaming broadcast that we'll do tonight with Austin Lee or, you know, the LTV and the CAC mm-hmm. on the brands that we manage, it's, it's really become, you're heavily reliant on it because if you don't rely on it, then it makes you start to not make better decisions. And what we've done as Super Ordinary is using that data, we give our brands, our partners, visibility into the consumer in China. Mm-hmm. And that gives us informed decisions on what products to make next. Yeah. And I think that's really exciting for our brand partners to know that, you know, this product is moisturizing, maybe too viscous on the skin, or, you know, this um, tint doesn't blend well, or this lipstick shape is too too bright. Mm-hmm. All of this information helps guide their product development. And for us to be successful, they have to be successful in their product development. So um, data has become a really big part of our business model. That's, that's great. Is there a different way they have to go about collecting the data there versus in the US? Maybe you would have, you know, you would do surveys, you would just directly ask, you would do, you know, your email marketing and stuff. I mean, how would you even go about collecting that data in a way that yeah. you feel safe? <laughs> You know, everything you learn about the business in the U.S. market, you leave at the door when you yeah. walk through Shanghai Airport. And I think that's where you have to really come in with eyes wide open to say, you know, how is the consumer interacting? First of all, there's no websites in China. Yeah. So you're working through these platforms. And, you know, we have a market where in the U.S. where you have a very large amount of websites in, in, in the U.S. market, whereas in China you have zero websites, mm-hmm. but you have all these platforms. So the world's bifurcated between platforms and, and D2C websites. Mm-hmm. And, and our view at Superordinary is that platform is where the market's headed to. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the websites are where you discover your brands, you, you, know, you learn more about the content, you go to Instagram, you go to Sephora, but at the end of the day, where do you gravitate to? Well, where you're buying your products mm-hmm. on Amazon, on Tmall, on Lazada. Yeah. This is where I think we really try to create this vision of where Superordinary is headed. And um, it's very important that our brands believe in this strategy too, because this is the direction we think beauty is headed. Yeah. In China, like I think to your question, collecting data, um, you know, the data that we get is readily available. I mean, you can see what people's revenues are by looking at Timor data. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what's interesting is that we have a lot of other platforms like you know, the equivalents of like Reddit 
and Quora that allow us to see what people are asking about brands. Mm-hmm. They're looking up ingredients. They're looking up what squalene means. They're asking what you know hyaluric acid does to your skin. And that's kind of data there is really um, important. There's a stereotype of the average American worker whose life goes something like this. Go to work, come home, consume some kind of entertainment, go to sleep, lather, rinse, repeat. If you're listening to this ad, then I know that that life does not resonate with you. For the truly disruptive business leader, work doesn't stay at the office and unwinding doesn't mean watching TV at night every single night. This is why we've created Mission Daily, a podcast that discusses the trends, habits, and ideas that thoughtful business people are contemplating every day. From quirky business opportunities to interesting investment ideas to the latest research in health and exercise and alternative medicine and maybe even plant medicine. Who knows where we're going to go, but Mission Daily covers it all. We're releasing new episodes every weekday. So join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we discuss the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't talk about publicly, that is. Break the status quo. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. I mean, how would a brand even think about getting in front? I mean, I know you're talking about platforms and like different ways to think about it, but so many brands here are used to paid media and email marketing and Instagram and all that. So like, I know you have to like completely just turn off all those ideas and start from fresh, but like, or from scratch, how do you, like, how should a brand think about entering a new market? Even trying to get their product there is one thing, but then trying to get the word out, especially if they aren't working with a firm like yours, like how do they even go about that? That's historic. I think historically when a brand has entered the market, they've had a number of choices. One is to go through a multi-brand website that sells products and posts it into China. Mm -hmm. Um, The problem with that is that, your product may or may not get to the end consumer. So there's a lot of risk. Mm -hmm. So that channel is obviously a very small one. Um, Two, it's to, you know, go in alone, go to China, hire a team, you know, spend $10 million, really go nuts. And and after five years, you have lots of learnings, Mm -hmm. pretty much what I've done and figure out like, oh my gosh, there must've been a better way to do this. You know, I'm not only spending a lot of money, but I'm losing time. You know, the way we approach our playbook, and it is a playbook because it is um, after many years of like learnings, is making sure that, you know, you focus on the brand and what it stands for and making sure that the messaging behind the brand is consistent. Mm -hmm. You don't want, you know, 16 different platforms saying 16 different things about your brand. And also the other thing is there's no such thing as, seeding like you can't just send out 100 packages and expect to be a, to receive 100 posts mm-hmm. so it's a paper play um environment so and that's because it you know the cultures are very different too so you know understanding the culture is very important to know that you know whereas you consumers you know spending most of the time i think it would shock most people that you know 88 percent of the beauty market is gen z and gen y mm-hmm. you know millennials more than 50% are purchasing products on their mobile phone they're, and they're looking to spend more and more on skincare and, and color. So I think understanding that just helps you frame, again, from those consumers, where are they spending their time? They're spending their time on TikTok or Douyin in China. They're spending their time on, you know, Little Red Book to discover. So we at Super Ordinary have a very large team now that speaks to over 40,000 influencers or KOLs um, through directly or through agencies. Because Superordinary has, you know, a very exciting portfolio of brands, we're able to authenticate 
the types of brands we work with. So we're, we're able to work with the, the very best live streamers in China. Um, we're probably one of the most active in the live streaming um, area. And that creates a lot of awareness around the brand. Building a brand from zero to one is the hardest part. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the most expensive part of the curve. And then, you know, years two and years three um, should be easier. So getting it right is very important. So writing a very concise go-to-market strategy, making sure that, you know, the messaging, whilst it's in local language and it feels local to the consumer, is not different to what it is in the US. So we don't want to be talking about a brand and not be in line with the brand guidelines, mm-hmm. but making sure that, you know, the emojis, the hashtags, the, the cute names around the products are, you know, really make sense to the local consumer. So that's there's a lot of like hard work that goes in before we even launch a brand. It's not just like putting it on like T-Mall and then mm-hmm. putting a price, which is traditionally what a lot of the local TPs have done. Yeah. So we, we really feel like you have to take a, a much stronger brand view about building that, that channel. Yeah, I mean, that's completely agree. I mean, what, what are some of the most or the biggest surprises maybe that brands have when you're going through and you're working with them and maybe you say, okay, but we need to do it this way, or this is kind of what they're expecting, or like influencers are the way, you know, here, it's not just like a nice to have, like it is here. It's like, this is the way to go. Like, what are some of the surprising things that brands maybe aren't expecting when you work with them? I think volume, volumes can get big very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. It's not uncommon that you will enter a a live streaming event and we'll do 3 million in sales in 20 seconds. Mm -hmm. Like it's the market's that much bigger, but at the same time, it's, um, you know, in the US, we're, we're used to like growth, very steady and yeah. 10, 20% every year. And, you know, and that's achievable. And in China, you know, something could happen where a very big celebrity will go to London and find your product and talk about it. And then boom, it's all gone in China. You cannot find it. Mm-hmm. And it's just because the absolute size of the market is that much bigger than the US. Yeah. And that when the community is all on their phones, buying and following these influences, it's a very much an influencer-led market and celebrity-led market. So I think that shocks a lot of brands that why doesn't it have like some steady growth? Yeah. They also realized the shock the um, difference is that it's how text-heavy the interaction with media is. So, you know, while we're in the West, we're very visual. In the East, it's very much about information. So, you know, before you even get to like the ingredients, there'll probably be like seven pages of text mm-hmm. talking about the product, the storyline. And then at the end, there'll be like some more information about the product itself. So, you know, it's, it's really important to realize that's how they, how they shop. Yep. Yeah. It's, I think also there's a, you know, the market there is moves very quickly. You know, it's, it's very saturated as, as well because every everyone sees China as mm-hmm. almost like the holy grail during the COVID environment, which, you know, I, I can't tell you the number of times people have asked me like, oh yeah, this is a must have. But um, also I think, you know, on the, on the downside is just measuring people's expectations lower because just because it's a big market doesn't mean your first year you're going to do 10 million in sales. Mm-hmm. It's really about you know, it takes time, you know, to build a brand five years minimum in in the global market. So why should it be any different in China? So my advice is really be patient with your brand. If, if, if you give it the love and tender loving care over the next five years, so make sure that it's there in five years. Not, you don't want something doing this and doing this. Yeah. I mean, that's what I was kind of thinking when you said, okay, you could do, you know, 3 million in sales in a matter of seconds. Yeah. How could a brand think about setting up maybe 
a longer term strategy there because when I'm putting on my US centric view, I'm like, okay, you, you know, you've got SEO stuff, you're getting to the top and you start ranking and then people see you more because yeah. you've proved that you're best long term and you can get on Amazon and do the same thing. And there it feels like if it's so based on maybe influencers and celebrities and if you do yeah. kind of have these blips of when you do get in front of people, like how do you maintain a brand there long term to where it's not just like crazy sales and then like not until you have your next celebrity or influencer talking about you again? Like how do you yeah. think about that? I, I, you know, I do think that's a billion dollar question. I <laughs> oh. really believe it. I choose it with no, my I head, do, billion do. dollar question. <laughs> <laughs> because I feel like, you know, you know, China has gotten to a, a cycle or a rhythm of doing shopping festival after shopping festival, yeah. whether it's 11-11, Secretary Day, mm -hmm. you know, these, these events become so gravitational for the consumer because they know they're going to get the best offers at those days. Mm -hmm. So naturally brands, if you don't participate in them, you miss, you know, the traffic, which helps get you more and more awareness. You know, channel dispersion um, is important because you don't want to be so focused on one channel versus the other. But I think with the, um, the opening up of the market with the removal of animal testing, it's going to allow us to become a much more measured approach. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is just imagine if you could only sell your brand through Target and, that's, and, you're, and you live and die by Target's traffic. Of course, you're going to play along the rules that Target management have given you to say, go and sell here, go and sell that. If you can imagine that you can leave Target and now open up in all these different retail retailers in, in the US, now you have a lot more control about your brand. So just like that in China, I think we're going to have this opportunity to build brands in a much more succinct manner and you know, opening the doors that we think best represent the brand and not have to like scattergun it through all these different social channels. So I think, you know, and also it's, it's fair to say that you know, the consumer now will get to touch the brand and the product for the first time in these physical stores. And it's not just Sephora, there's like, you know, there's like seven to 10 other competitors in China, which have got like ins insane new retail experience. So, you know, I think the, the market there is, you know, 10 to 15 years ahead of the US mm -hmm. in many ways. So, and that's another shock to the most brands. It's like, oh my God, this really truly exists. Yeah. So what are, what are some of these experiences that are so far ahead that maybe we should be looking into? Yeah. So uh, I think the consumer, when they go to a retail store in, in China, they traditionally, you know, you go to a Sephora, which is, you know, really much about it's glossy black. It's got music, you know, you've okay. got these, you've got these beauty um, um, assistants that will come in and they really, you know, sell you the product. You know, China has also gone the other way where they've removed all the beauty assistants and you go in there and it almost feels like a ghost town, but you get to try all these products in sample sizes. So there are examples of that. And there's a shop called Harmay, H-A-R-M-A-Y. Google it and have a look. It's, um, it looks like a, a museum mm -hmm. and um, they're 10,000 square feet. It's very Instagrammable as a word, but it's, it's one of these things that I think has really changed the way that people are interacting because people want to drive to it traffic to a store it has to be a reason mm -hmm. especially when you can buy everything online so i think that's really exciting i always get asked the question of like why is live streaming working in china versus yeah, the u.s that's a big one whenever people have come on here and talked about i mean we had one guest who taught at harvard and they brought a live streamer from china over to kind of show how many harvard t-shirts they could sell or hats or something yeah. and it was 
insane. But then I also was like, I don't know if that would work here. I don't know. Like, it just doesn't feel yeah. like a similar market um, around how it was happening and the things that, I don't know, it just didn't feel very familiar. I think culturally, I think we don't, in the US and the West, we don't like to be sold to. And that's why Instagram is very much uh, a place where you build relationships with the, the other person. So I think that's fundamentally where, you know, the, the big difference is. And remember, like live streaming in China is a business. Mm -hmm. You know, these live streamers are starting work at 6 p.m. and clocking off at 2 a.m. And they do that 365 days a year Gosh. because it's a business. Yeah. And they have tens of people underneath them that are helping them bring in product to talk about. So, you know, when you think about you, this is your starting block. And when you think about in the West, I don't think people will approach live streaming in the same manner. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, the winner in live streaming, in my view, is that it will, will be the platform. So I would make a bet that, you know, Amazon would probably be the leader mm -hmm. um, eventually because they're the ones that are going to be able to fulfill and deliver, you know, multiple brands and multiple products to the consumer in a very fast fashion. Mm -hmm. However, you know, it's exciting to watch all these new platforms come about, you know, enter the space. Yep. Are there any other trends that you see happening in China right now that you're like, oh, like this could work for the US or this should definitely be brought back because people would love that here? I think um, China's done a really incredible job of cross collaborations with really interesting partners, like very nonsensical to, you know, the West, like, you know, you'd see like, a, uh, I don't know, in the West, you'd see, you know, a clothing brand pair up with a, you know, a skincare brand, but in China, they'll go, KFC will do something with a perfume brand or, and that's, or a bubble tea will go work with, you know, Fenty Beauty, mm -hmm. you know, they like to think out of the box in the market. And I think it's, that's really exciting. I do like the idea that the idea of sampling, mm -hmm. I think sampling is something that you know, the US has always been involved with, you know, these boxes that get delivered to the customer, these subscription boxes, whether it's Birchbox or mm -hmm. BoxyCharm and all these different ones. But in China, I, I see that, you know, there's this interest to go and try sample size products at, at stores. And I think that could eventually translate over here. And I think they'll be well received. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, I even think about Costco. I wonder how much business they've lost because People like samples and they do, I mean, yeah. Yeah, it seems like there's the stores that are okay with letting you try everything. And I know COVID kind of mixed that up a bit and made it harder to do that. But I wonder if it'll lean heavier into that because I think that's such a great way to sell. But yeah. it seems like some brands are kind of stingier with like, well, I don't want to give this away for free. And it'd be <laughs> interesting to have a case study of like, well, when one, you know, when you get a sample, here's like the ROI and the LTV just based off that one little teeny sample that you did give away consistently, not just like once a week when you send someone in to be an ambassador. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I think that's really exciting. I think the US is like incredible at creating these ideas. Like Ipsy has done a great mm -hmm. job and really given this, the consumer uh, a more accessible way to try products. Yep. But, you know, we have to always ask ourselves a question, what's going to drive the N plus one customer to go into the next multi-brand beauty store hmm. you know i'm buying my groceries online because i don't want to go yeah. queue up yeah. i mean that's that this is the trend and, and and it's accelerating faster and faster yeah yep i agree so the one thing i'm thinking about now too is that it feels like in some ways you know the u.s and chinese buyers are the same in other ways like very different like thinking about the sale aspect where it's like that's big in china and actually it's kind of like seemingly going away here where it's like why are we doing these black friday events like there's no point. And so that's one difference. And the other one I'm thinking about is 
all these new D2C companies popping up where you see consumers here kind of like falling in love with the brand, which is very different than maybe even like five years ago when maybe yeah. you didn't always know who the brand was behind the product. Are right. the buyers in China similar or are they not really open to new brands or do they not really want to hear about the story? You know, how, what are the differences there? So I think, you know, for example, when we started Super Ordinary, we saw this opportunity to bring clean beauty into China. Mm-hmm. At the time, there was no social listening around clean beauty. So if you checked out clean beauty packaging, clean ingredients, there was really nothing there. And that was very important. I think the US where they're ahead of China in this respect is the brand story, the mission behind it. Mm-hmm. What does the brand stand for? What's the why? Yeah. Um, I think those types of ideas are becoming more and more important in China. Mm-hmm. You know, we're starting to see brands really care about, you know, the environment, you know, the packaging, you know, what they, what they do, the say-do ratio, mm-hmm. we call it. Yep. You know, I think one of the learnings we had was, and this is why you know, I think Superordinary is really kind of, we moved to the U.S. to really build out the Amazon business mm-hmm. because we saw the opportunity of what we were doing in China and reapplying that to beauty on Amazon. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone knows the story that, you know, there are rogue sellers on Amazon. There are, there's plenty of opportunity and over one third of all beauty purchases are now on Amazon. Yep. And, and it's like this you know, dirty little secret we all know, but we're all purchasing our, you know, toilet paper or uh, mineral water on Amazon. So why don't we buy our skincare? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we set up a team, we have a team just under 25 people here in the US, um, focusing on building brands, the story, making sure their DTC websites look exactly like they do on Amazon. Mm -hmm. And it's just been really exciting because um, in five years time from now, I think if you ask yourself the question, you know, I want to buy a product today and I want it on my doorstep in 30 minutes, who's the player that's going to be able to do that? And it's really going to be, it's not your own DTC website. It's really the part that they can actually have the, you know, the tentacles everywhere to be able to do that. Yep. Yeah, that's going to be huge. All right. Well, with a couple of minutes left, let's shift over to the lightning round. Lightning round is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. That's where I ask a question and you have a minute or less to answer. Are you ready, oh, wow. Julian? Let's go. All right. If you had a podcast, what would it be about? And who would your first guest be? Ooh, I would invite Anthony Bourdain. He's like, I just think he's the coolest guy. And I really enjoy his international aspect of traveling and eating. I love eating. Yeah. He'd be your perfect guy. Yeah. So uh, a show yeah. all about eating good food then. I like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Definitely nothing to do with e-commerce. Yeah, that's, that's good. <laughs> well, when you want to stay on top of like new trends that are popping up, how do you stay on top of that? Where do you go? What are you looking at? Yeah. How do you know what's hot? Um, I'm lucky enough to have three boys uh-huh. um, who are 16, 14, and 12. That's who they know. Keep me on my toes. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually ask them and they find everything on Twitch. So I, I usually ask them and then they, they like frown at me like, Dad, what are you doing in makeup? <laughs> <laughs> they can ask makeup stuff on Twitch. Wow, that might be a new. Uh... Yeah, it is. They it's just, true. What do they ask? Becoming a, well, they just find out like about, me- they know everything from. Uh, men's grooming and they get targeted and it's so funny because the young one he said dad what's manscaping i'm like what do you learn that from <laughs> we'll talk about that <laughs> so later I'm, always, I'm, I'm learning about new, new 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 projects and new things all the time oh my gosh that's awesome that could be a whole new trend there go on twitch <laughs> ask the people they'll let you know what all the trends are 
That's right. What was an idea that you thought was brilliant that ended up kind of like failing? Oh, I've got so many of those. Um, I'm trying to think of the one that's the least embarrassing. Yeah, I like embarrassing, funny. During, co- <laughs> during COVID, I was like, wow. Um, I was thinking about, you know, everyone's staying at home. Everyone's on these Zoom classes. Like, what? why doesn't people create, you know, comfortable clothes? Maybe I should start a pajama company. But I was quickly, you know, have, have a handbrake on that. Um, so I didn't do that. But, the, you know, I've, I've also done other things. Um, what else did I do? I, um, I invested in a pool cleaning company back in the day. And that was my first like real investment. Uh-huh. And um, I had a very big learning from that because I gave him all the money up front. The second day he never showed up for work. And I'm like, huh, <laughs> that was a bad, <laughs> that was a bad trade. <laughs> never saw that dude again. Yeah. <laughs> all right. What's up next on your reading list? On my reading list. Um, I guess I'm a creature of habit. I think, you know, one of the things, one of the books I wish I read 20 years ago if it was available was Ray Dalio's principles. Yes. I think so good. he's the most, he gives you this honest look at yourself. It's very introspective and, um, tells you how to build teams. Um, I recommend everyone in the world to read that book over and over and over again. Yeah. He's uh, such an interesting person, all his philosophies. And I think, yeah, he came and spoke at Google when I was there and just hearing how he thinks about rating his employees. Have you uh, read about this? Oh, yeah, like, of course. You get a rating. And if you're this level, like you actually just probably shouldn't speak up until you get to this level and yeah, but everyone gets access to everything. And yeah, I know the scorecard is like a baseball card. I mean, it's the, but it's, it's, it, it gives you a very different perspective about, you know, radical transparency yep. and, and also being teaching you how to take constructive criticism in a positive way mm-hmm. and knowing that, you know, collectively the information in the room will allow you to, you know, make better decisions. Yeah. Yeah. I love that book. Well, awesome. Well, (laughs) Julian, I've loved having you on the show. If people are trying to get into China and they're looking for help, where can people find out more about you and Super Ordinary? Yeah. So we have a website, superordinary.co, not.com. Um, thank you, whoever took that website away from us. Um, <laughs> we'll find you. Um, or reach me on um, Julian Race, R E I S, at superordinary.co. Um, really, thank you so much, Stephanie. You're wonderful. So nice to speak to you. Thanks so much. It's been awesome. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.